Well, what a great worship team. Thanks for leading us tonight. I am that Pastor Wayne that uh, Pastor Vaco was referring to. And uh, a number of years ago, handed off the baton to Chad Holland as the senior pastor here. But I get to preach about every couple of months, and I'm privileged to do that this evening. Before I do, let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word will come strong through me this evening. Lord, I can't convict hearts, even my own, but by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you can open up the deepest recesses of our hearts and reveal to us what's there and what needs to change and how we can change by the power of your Spirit. I pray, O oh God, that because of this word that we'll be inspired, encouraged, and we'll leave different people this evening. In Yeshua's name, amen. That's not going to happen without the Lord's help, for sure. I want to welcome those of you who are online, watching all over the world. Usually we have 25 to 30 nations represented, and probably this evening is similar. But many of us in the room tonight, it's great to be together in this place. We're in a series called Perspectives, and uh, what is a perspective? Well, it's a point of view. It's a particular angle from which a person looks at an event or an object. And some of you maybe have been eyewitnesses to an accident. Uh, you were sitting in a cafe, you're looking across the street, and suddenly you see these two cars colliding. And uh, the police approach you, and they ask you what happened, and you give your perspective. But then they interview a young teenage girl who was walking across the street, or about to cross the street, and this little terrier in her arms that she loves so much suddenly jumped out of her arms and ran across the street and heard the screeching tires as the first car stopped in order to avoid the dog, and he did, thankfully. And then the police uh, go to another man, and he's a guy who's in a second car who smashed into the first car who had put on his brakes to avoid the dog and it was a hitchhiker who had been sitting in the passenger seat and police asked, well, what, what perspective did you have? And he said, well, I was, I'm a hitchhiker. <laughs> and the guy that was driving me was texting and he was driving fairly fast and all, of, all I know is we slammed into that car in front of us. I don't know how it happened, why it happened. Well, the police gather all of these eyewitness accounts, they put them together, and they get a report, and then they offer that report to a judge. They give a synopsis of what really happened, the how and the why. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that there were eyewitnesses to Yeshua and things that happened to him and what he said. And we actually have three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who together have put a synopsis that we get a comprehensive understanding of what happened in Yeshua's life. We don't get the whole story, of course, and John tells us that uh, the whole world could not contain all the books that would tell of what Yeshua did and what he said. But... We have these three Gospels that have three different angles or perspectives on what happened. 
It says in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so there's something that happened to Yeshua, which all three of the synoptic gospel writers, those ones that write in a similar fashion, a little differently than John, there's a common thread here, and it has to do with an event of great magnitude, an unusual event in all of the gospels, and it is the transfiguration. Now, my focus this evening will be what it means to live a Messiah-centered life. It will be based on this encounter of Yeshua. Now, our vision statement here at King of Kings is we are called to be a compelling Messiah-centered community that is spirit-empowered, making disciples and revealing the true face of Yeshua to Israel and the nations. We aspire to be Messiah-centered. The story of the transfiguration, I believe, tells us that that vision to be Messiah-centered is biblical. It is what every one of us individually and corporately should aspire to be, Messiah-centered. I'm going to only read from one of the texts that speak of the story of the transfiguration, and that's Matthew chapter, the end of chapter 16 and the first nine verses of chapter 17. Would you turn there, please, in your Bibles? If you have a device, whether an iPhone or a tablet, please scroll there, okay? And it's important that we go back to scrolls again. So Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 27, we're going to read this. I hope you've gotten there. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white, as light and behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him then Peter answered and said to Yeshua Lord it is good for us to be here if you wish let us make here three tabernacles one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah while he was speaking behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Yeshua commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Living the Messiah-centered life. That's the thing I decided to do from age five. I had a born-again experience. Yeshua changed my life. I still remember it. And I can tell you today, it's my greatest desire is to make Yeshua number one, that everything will revolve around him. I've had times when that hasn't been the case, but I can tell you that from this point on and forever, I plan to make Yeshua the center of it all. Is that your desire? Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many common perspectives on this transfiguration event. 
But there are a few cases where each of them have unique angles or perspectives and details that the others do not. One unique contribution to this account is by Luke. Now, first of all, look what it says in verse 3 of Matthew 17. It says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, talking with Yeshua. Now, if you're like me, I'm curious to know what the three of them were talking about. But Matthew doesn't tell us. But thankfully, Luke does. Luke says this in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men talked with Yeshua, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Decease, what a strange word. And frankly, I don't like the way the New King James Version translated the original Greek for that word, decease. Guess what the Greek word actually is? Exodus. Remind you of anything? Here, Moses and Elijah are talking about Yeshua's exodus. <laughs> and of course, we get the word exodus from exodus. So that's what they were talking about. Now, let me use my sanctified imagination and speculate concerning Moses' perspective on the exodus Yeshua's exodus. Here's Moses, and again, I'm making this up, but it might be interesting. Yeshua, I know what it is to be part of an exodus. It wasn't easy. Pharaoh didn't want us to leave Egypt. We were cheap labor, slaves. Our taskmasters abused us day after day, and my heart broke for my people. God called me to deliver them. This was a heavy burden on my shoulders. And Yeshua, take it from me. You're about to bring about a great deliverance of people in bondage to sin. You're going to bear those sins on your shoulders. It's going to be a huge cost that you will pay at your exodus. God was ready to pour out his wrath on Egypt by killing the firstborn child of each home. But in his wrath, he remembered mercy. Even though the wages of sin is death, God provided a substitute to die in our place so that the firstborn child would not have to die. And God told us to choose a perfect lamb among our flock and then to slay that lamb and take its precious blood and smear it on the doorposts of our homes. And then the firstborn would be spared. And that's what we did. And his angel of wrath passed over our homes and no one inside our homes died. And then Moses continued to say to Yeshua, you are the ultimate sinless lamb of God who will take away the sins of the whole world. And anyone who puts their trust in the shedding of your blood for us, by faith, applying your blood to their lives, they will be saved from death. But not only saved from death, but experience eternal life in the promised land. Up until now, I never got a chance to set my feet in the promised land, but here I am, Yeshua, standing here with you on the west side of the Jordan in the land of Israel, the promised land. I don't know, do you think, you think Moses would have said something like that in his conversation about Yeshua's exodus? Maybe. Forgive me for my sanctified imagination. And then there's Elijah's perspective. 
what he might have said to Yeshua in that conversation they had. It is written in the scriptures that Elijah will come first and prepare the way of the Lord for his coming. But Yeshua, you're already here. Did I miss something? <laughs> oh, maybe you're coming back again and I'll get another chance to prepare for your return. I could speculate further, but there's a little time for that. But clearly, Moses and Elijah would have had their own perspective of what was happening on that mountain at Yeshua's transfiguration. Quickly now, let me just show you some other unique perspectives and details given by Mark, Luke, and Peter, actually, in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 4 of our text in Matthew 17, Peter speaks to Yeshua saying, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Lord here is kurios in Greek. But in Mark's account, Peter addresses Yeshua as rabbi, rabbi. And then Luke says that Peter called Yeshua master, epistatus. Are these contradictions? I think not. Peter could easily have used all three of those terms when speaking to Yeshua in this more lengthy conversation that we don't get the whole conversation in the text. In Peter's two letters, he often used the term Lord in speaking of Yeshua. Luke 8, 45 says, has Peter addressing Yeshua as master? And in Mark 11, Peter refers to Yeshua as rabbi. It's interesting that the apostolic father Papias of Herapolis from the first century says that Mark's gospel was based on Peter's teaching about Yeshua. In any case, in the same conversation with Yeshua on that mountain, Peter couldn't, could have referred to Yeshua as Lord and Rabbi and Master. And Luke, writing to a more Gentile audience, would have been emphasized the part of the conversation where Peter called him Master rather than the more Jewish terms like Lord and Rabbi, for he was writing to a more Gentile audience. If I had time, I could show you all kinds of examples where certain details of this transfiguration event are mentioned by only two of the gospel writers. And then there were cases where all three mentioned the same thing, but there's no time for that. But let me just mention a detail that is not found, that is found not only in the three synoptic gospels, but also in 2 Peter. This is a long time since this event, and Peter's gone through a lot. It's post-Pentecost, and Peter's writing this letter. And this is what he says in chapter 1 and verse 16 of the second letter he writes. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what's unique about Peter's recollection, not mentioned by the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is the fact that he says, we were eyewitnesses. Peter was the only eyewitness among the gospel writers who was on that mountain. So how did the synoptic gospel writers get their information concerning Yeshua's life and ministry? Well, there were oral and some written sayings of Yeshua and some biographical information, eyewitness accounts from other apostles and other followers of Yeshua. 
And then they were collected by each of the gospel writers and written down in either chronological or thematic ways. And Luke admits how he got his information to write his gospel in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 and following. This is how we get his perspective. This is what Luke says. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered, that delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now let me get to the application of my message this evening. I'm going to answer two questions. Number one, why live a Messiah-centered life? And number two, how to live a Messiah-centered life? So first of all, why should we live a Messiah-centered life? Isn't it enough to see Yeshua as a great teacher, a great model, as one of the many prophets and teachers that God sent to the earth? And you know, increasingly Jewish people including many professors and even some rabbis, are speaking positively about Yeshua these days. But they're speaking about his lifestyle and his great teaching. But it doesn't go much beyond that. Well, let me address this question of why we should live a Messiah-centered life. This would imply that Yeshua is more than just a great teacher, a great model, or even a prophet but that everything revolves around him, that he must be the center of our lives. The transfiguration proves that Yeshua is the center of it all. He answers that question, why live a Messiah-centered life? Number one, take note, Yeshua stands alone. And that's literally true in the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah disappear from the scene at the end of this event. And Matthew 17, verse 8 says that when they, that is Peter, James, and John, had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. Mark 9, 8 says, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Yeshua with themselves. And in his second letter, Peter doesn't even mention Moses and Elijah. In both of his books, neither one of them get mentioned. For for Peter, Yeshua has become the focus. He's become the center of his attention. Yeshua stands alone. Number two, why should we be Messiah-centered? Because Yeshua is greater than Moses and Elijah. Let's talk about Moses for a moment. Moses appears with Yeshua on that mountain. And Peter said, hey, if it's your wish, Lord, let me, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Yeshua, as if they're all kind of equal on the same plane. Strange. But let me show you that Yeshua supersedes Moses and Elijah. Moses, first of all. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in some ways, that verse doesn't show that Yeshua is any greater than Moses, just that he had a distinctive role to play. 
And Moses did prophesy, however, that one day someone like him will appear on the stage of history. In the book of Acts, we see that Peter, same Peter, quotes the Hebrew scriptures as saying, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. But is Yeshua equal to Moses? In Peter's second letter, he never mentions Moses even once. But he says in 1 Peter 3 that Yeshua has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let me read that again for wondering if Yeshua is greater than Moses. Yeshua has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Moses doesn't have angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now, what about Elijah? Is Yeshua greater than Elijah? In Judaism, Elijah is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, prophet of all. Elijah stops the rain and causes this great famine. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, and he's even able to call down fire from heaven. Elijah did many other miracles. He ascended to heaven in a fiery chariot and apparently never died. But Yeshua died. And though Yeshua was resurrected, he didn't go to heaven in a fiery chariot. And in many texts of ancient Judaism, Elijah, it's, they say, will return to the earth. And uh, Elijah's responsible for the resurrection of the dead. He will return to lessen God's wrath. He will reconcile father and son and to restore Jacob. In the Mishnah tractate at Duyot, it says that Elijah will judge and settle disputes and decide which families are pure. So does Yeshua have the same status as Elijah or maybe even less than him? Well, Peter didn't believe so even before he saw Yeshua transfigured and saw Elijah standing next to Yeshua. Just before the transfiguration in the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 16, we read this in chapter 16 verse 13. When Yeshua came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some said John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter never confesses that Elijah was the Messiah, nor the son of God, only Yeshua. He confessed in this way. So Yeshua stands alone among the greatest of the heroes of the Tanakh. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Moses. Now let me get to this point, which is the more important one of all, and that would be this. We make Yeshua the center of our lives because Yeshua is God himself in human flesh. Let me show that to you. Some have even said that Yeshua was the Messiah for the Gentiles, but not the Jews. And I had a discussion with a Jewish friend who's developed a close relationship with Christians. And although he studied to be a rabbi, he told me that he has no problem with Messianic Jews who believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. But if they say he's God, well, I've got a big problem with them. Now, there are many, many scriptures to prove that Yeshua is the Lord God. I'll just mention a few. 
We read in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Can you figure out the logic there? John is clearly saying that Yeshua, the living word, is God. Paul, as far as we know, never encountered Yeshua before his death, resurrection, and ascension, but he tells the story more than once of his incredible encounter, almost a transfiguration-type experience on, his road, on the road to Damascus. And he begins to tell this to opponents and friends, and he says this now in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, concerning the one he met, the risen Lord he met on that road. According to the flesh, Yeshua came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Like John, Paul believed Yeshua is the creator God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Yeshua is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. There's a fascinating study you can do. I've been doing it a lot in the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament where a term memra, which in Aramaic means word, is shown to be the one who actually created the world. We see how that memra appeared to prophets of old. He spoke to them as if he were God himself speaking. And there are hundreds of scriptures that show that this word is the one who is actually God himself, who was with God from the beginning and is the one who created the universe. Why should we be Messiah-centered? Because he is Lord. He is God. Can anyone say amen to this? Now, finally, a little more practical. We've talked about why he should be Messiah-centered now. How do we make him the center of our lives? Number one, we do so by making him our savior. That's where it all begins. Let's consider God's perspective. Now, looking down on this, looking down on us. He sees people that he created and deeply desires to have fellowship with. He created human beings because he loves. And in his, his love is so great that he wanted to love more than himself. Fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was wonderful. And vast amounts of time from eternity was spent in fellowship with the three persons, but one Lord. But God desired to express his infinite love beyond the realm of heaven. He wanted to demonstrate his love to earthlings like you and me. He desired that we would return our love to him, but he did not want to make us into robots who are programmed to love him. Humans with no free will, but forced to love. So he gave humans free will and that they would love him voluntarily and that that love would be genuine. And when he did that, he opened himself up to the possibility of being rejected by his creations. And that's what happened almost from the beginning. 
Adam and Eve rejected his commands and a great gulf of separation happened. It was no longer walking and talking in the garden with them, but that sweet fellowship turns into estrangement. But as much as God's heart is broken because his fellowship with mankind is broken, instead of completely destroying his creations, who've rejected him for the most part, his infinite love is greater than his righteous anger. In wrath, he remembers mercy. So what does he do for a lost and rebellious and hopeless creation? John 3:16 and following, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son into the world that the world through him might be saved. The word saved comes from the root sozo. When God saves a person, he preserves them from eternal death, judgment, and all that might lead to such death. It means, sozo means being rescued from punishment and being given eternal life. And when we see sozo, it means not only rescue from physical death, but spiritual death. And in James chapter five, it's even used in reference to rescuing us from our sickness and disease. So a person who is Messiah-centered is a person who has made Yeshua his savior, his deliverer, his rescuer, his restorer, both physical and spiritual. There may be some in this room who have never put their trust in this savior for their exodus, for their deliverance from sin and Satan. This would be a good night to do that. Those online watching, there may be some of you in the same boat. He wants to save you. He loves you. He has infinite love. And he'd rather pour out his mercy than his wrath. Would you make Yeshua your savior? How do you do that? Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. If you're Jewish, you still need Yeshua to be your savior. In fact, this good news of salvation from sin and death, according to Paul in Romans 1.16, is to the Jew first. And Yeshua said to a fellow Jew named Thomas in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this Peter who saw Yeshua on that mountain and saw his transfiguration will write in Acts, will say in Acts chapter 4 verse 11, in front of rulers and elders of the Jewish people, he said, this Yeshua is the stone which you rejected, which the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The very next verse after Peter says this, that no other name by which we can be saved, he says in the next verse, verse 13, now when they, that is the Jewish religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Yeshua. <laughs> they marveled because they had been with Yeshua. That explains their boldness explains their confidence in the truth of who Yeshua is. 
How much time do you spend with Yeshua? Is it a daily spending time? I would challenge each and every one of us to give quality time. Maybe the best time of our day when we're most awake and alert. Give that time to the Lord. If we get a glimpse of the Lord himself in those encounters, like Peter was with Yeshua on the mountain of transfiguration, so we can have those experiences too through Yeshua's Holy Spirit. So how do we live a Messiah-centered life? We begin by making Yeshua our Savior. And then finally, if we are Messiah-centered, we will have made Yeshua our Lord. Our Lord. In all of Peter's second letter, Peter's letters, he never mentions Moses or Elijah. But he says in 1 Peter, 1 Peter, that Yeshua has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God Moses doesn't have that place and neither does Elijah. He is Lord. And then in Matthew 17, verse 5, we read, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. When you read the Old Testament scriptures and you see that, that word, hear him, And Moses even said, there's going to be a prophet like me, hear him. It means more than just hearing a voice, but it is obeying. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. It means hear and obey. If you make him your Lord, it means you submit to him. You obey him. You do his will. Our job is to hear his voice, but also to do what that voice says. As I mentioned earlier, when we look at all three synoptic gospels, we see that Peter spoke to Yeshua, calling him Lord, Rabbi, and Master. Master. If Yeshua is our master, then we do what he says. Yeshua himself, referring to himself, says master, and uses that phrase, when he says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Peter introduces himself in his second letter with these words, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, to those who have obtained precious like faith with us by the righteousness of God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Peter declares that Yeshua is his master and he is his bondservant. Paul the Apostle and other writers of Scripture speak of themselves as bondservants or slaves of the Lord. They have made Yeshua their master. Yes, we get delivered from the Egyptian slave master. But ultimately, God replaces the cruel taskmasters with himself, who is the loving, kind, generous, merciful God who simply asks us to follow his ways and you'll experience joy, fulfillment, significance, and you'll live with me forever. William Carey is the man who many claim is the father of modern missions. He translated the entire Bible into Bengali and transformed culture through business and education. He gave up much to serve 
his master. There's a family today, and I've had the privilege to know them, and they've, they started out their business making frames for pictures that would hang on the wall. Today, that business has expanded, and it's a multi-billion dollar operation. The father and his kids live very modestly, and they give away almost all of their profits, and they've even blessed our ministry. They have made Yeshua their master. Many of you in this room and online have given up lucrative careers to humbly serve your master. Some of you have served decades in Jerusalem and you live by faith. You don't know where the next shekel, the next dollar or euro is going to come from, but you have made Yeshua the center of your life and you have made him your master. You're a bondservant to him and you will do whatever he tells you to do. I commend you for that. And Master Yeshua declares in John 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Working for the Lord, serving the master can be very difficult at times. But let me tell you this, the benefits are out of this world. This would be a good time for our worship team to come. Because if worship expresses our love for our master, and it expresses our desire to give him glory and honor in all that we do. Some of you know that the, one of the main words for worship in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, is the word avodah. And those of you who speak Hebrew use that word avodah all the time to refer to your work. This is what I do. This is my work, avodah. Let me tell you this. Whatever you do in life, whatever career, whatever you do, if you are working for the master, then you are giving him true worship. It's not just our worship when we're in an auditorium like this with our hands raised and sometimes dancing and singing with our voices, but it is also what we do when we come down from this mountain and go back to work, but our work is fully dedicated to him and our whole desire is that he gets the glory through our work. We'll be leaving soon this room, but Jesus will not be leaving you. <laughs> Moses and Elijah left the scene, but Yeshua stayed with those three disciples and they came down the mountain together and joined the other apostles and they went to work in the valley below. God's calling us to get to work to serve him and our service being worship to him. Finally, I close with these words of worship. What we are commanded to do from Philippians chapter two and verse six, and this clinches the deal that he is Lord and master, who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow those in heaven and on the, those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. Can we stand? We're going to worship the Lord, but let me pray first. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not yet come to see you and know you and realize who you really are, that you're more than just a good teacher or prophet, but you are the very son of God in whom you were well pleased, that Yeshua is the only savior and the only name by which we can be saved. Lord, I pray for anyone listening to the sound of my voice, that through the power of your spirit, you would cause them to want to follow you and do your will and be saved. I pray for all of us in this room, even those that know you. Some of us maybe have drifted and you're not the center of it all. Very few things revolve around you. I pray, God, for a great return, a great revival, a restoration to that place where we exalt you as Lord and Master, and that you are the center of it all, I pray. If you don't know the Lord, we'd love to speak with you, to share with you the ways to follow him and help you along that journey. For those of us who know the Savior, I encourage you, I challenge you tonight to give him everything. Amen.